Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Make sure to check out our new book, Understanding Viruses. It's available on Amazon. I would type in Finding Genius. That's the fastest way to find it. Uh, That book came out of uh, interviews of first 100 virologists, and then we distilled the questions, uh, the most difficult ones, and re-asked 25 top virologists, and that's what the book's composed of. It has a lot of really great insights. I think it may take Maybe I'm boasting, but it may take 10 or 20 years for it to be uh, outdated. So I think it'll be a great read and people can find it again by going to Amazon and typing in Finding Genius. So today, my guest, he's going to be a, a co-author in the upcoming cancer book, Saverio Gentile. He's a PhD research assistant professor at the College of Medicine at Chicago Medicine. And uh, glad to have him back. Saverio, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to see you again. Yeah. Well, very good. So if you're ready, we'll get started. My first question is, uh, do you believe that, that cancer is uh, its own separate life form? And if so, or if not, at, at what stage would it become its own life form? You know, when it's a few cells, when it's thousands, when it's millions or a billion? Well, the, the short answer is no. I don't think that cancer is uh, something that uh, was implanted in us from who knows what other inhabitant or what other planet. Cancer is, is really nothing more than... Uh, a normal cell that have different way of controlling certain things. In other words, the differences between a cancer cell and a normal cell doesn't really stand in the shape, form, or anything. They really look the same. 
a cancer cell is more of a cell that have lost control of very specific parameters. It, it is famous now that uh, you know cancer cells are cells that don't stop proliferating, but proliferation is something that relates to every single cell at uh, at some point or another during development, for example. So a cancer cell is just a cell that have lost control of arresting proliferation. But it hasn't been observed that, for instance, tumors act as one. You think that they do in terms of cell-to-cell signaling or tumor-to-tumor signaling or in terms of, you know, asking for angiogenesis or invading the immune system? These are very different topics. So if I would like to summarize the entire uh, history of cancers, it, you can definitely refer to anything that's been already summarized in uh, by Charles Darwin with the origin of species. Basically, it's it's more or less the same thing. It's a matter of a cell that try to adapt to whatever are the problems that they find. So imagine a normal cell that is insulted by a variety of agents, for example, or events, which can be physical insults like radiations or chemical insults by some of these pollutants and so on. The cell actually receives this, some damages, but these damages are repaired and, or if they're not repaired, the outcome that is negative is compensated somehow by the cell. And if that is not possible, the vast majority of the cells, they tend to die. So those that in the process of, again, adopting or counteracting uh, these insults don't die, uh, they still have used or they use biochemical pathways, which are nothing more than programs that cells normally have that allow them to avoid uh, uh, cell death. Again, a cancer cell is, uses these tools to adapt to whatever is the insult. And, um, but this, whatever cancer cells doing has been done already by uh, normal cells and these normal cells do it every day because the cells are insulted every day by a variety of, of um, elements. Then eventually a cancer cell, you know, when they start moving, they do that because uh, randomly can activate or inactivate a variety of other pathways that makes them moving. That of course uh, needs to be accompanied by a, a, an advantage. If the cells moves and goes into a body compartment, for example, that cannot uh, guarantee their survival, these cells again will die. Each one of these processes, like proliferation, migration, invasion, recolonization, this again, they use tools, uh, biochemical pathways, input and output that a normal cells do, uh, only that cancer yeah, but- cells do it in, in times where it's not allowed or out of control. Well, question here. So do you think, so you say cells are adapting all the time. Is it a deliberate adaptation? And is therefore cancer a maladaptation that was forced by continuous chronic insult, or do you think it's just random? Well, it can be both. It it is really difficult to understand when uh, it happened, but it can be both. Again, it can be a normal cell that uh, tries to adapt to an insult. The insult is not excessive, meaning that it doesn't kill the cell right away. And, uh, And in the process of adapting, the cells can maybe be exposed to another insult or create its own insult and eventually be uh, almost a victim of, of itself. For example, there are cancer cells that once they are attacked by specific pollutant, they generate, uh, just comes to my mind right now, superoxide. This superoxide normally should fix the damage or create more damage. For example, 
damage the, damaging the DNA, and that creates genet genetic instability, and therefore increases the probability that uh, other pathways are not kept under control. And um, so it, it is also true that uh, cancer cell, once you have a large amount of cells that actually are forming a tumor, these cells tend to talk to each other in order to create an environment in which their growth is favored, is favorable. For example, you mentioned about angiogenesis, they are actually able to tell the blood vessel to redirect, to grow again, to redirect uh, towards a tumor so that the tumor can actually get nutrients from them. And how do you think that typical blood cell, a particular blood cell will be laid down? Is this a consensus mechanism, you think, from the vote of all the cells in a tumor? Or how do you think it happens? Like, how is the placement, how does the call for resources look like? Again, is it a, a consensus, like a quorum sensing, or is it just a cacophony of different needs and, and the majority one wins? What do you think happens? Well, it, there's a relatively large literature about this, and some of them can be even controversial. What, it, what appears to be, though, one of the major route is that tumor cells start sending signals. And these signals are chemical compounds. Uh, and these chemical compounds are received by cells that are in the, in the, in the blood vessel. And these chemical compounds basically are uh, almost dictating the blood vessels to reorganize and grow again and, and, and vascularize whatever is the area that uh, serves the tumor. Now, this, this vascularization is not under control. The, the vascularization of a cancer seems to be more of a, a random branching and deep branching of the overall system. While in a, normal, in a normal body during development, for example, there is more or less the same mechanism, but the vascularization is kept under control very tightly. So you have the blood vessel is formed only in that particular area and not in another. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. With cancer is a little bit, this rebranching of the overall situation, it is really a, a random event. But in, in the end, what really matters is that the cancer gets nutrients from uh, whatever the blood stream is, is bringing to them. Now, one cancer cell alone it seems to be not enough to send out enough signal so that a blood vessel can actually respond to. So in other words, you need a critical mass. And then in, in some extent, it makes sense if you think about it, because the cancer can use the vascularization that is already present in the tissue where uh, the cancer is generated. But when the cancer becomes larger and larger and larger, there will be area, they are not, they're not supplied by the, the bloodstream. So this is a kind of uh, demand that the cancer, the tumor actually wants to establish. And therefore, the larger is the tumor, the larger is the signal that we've been sent around, and not just for vascularization, but for a variety of other things. And therefore, 
in, term, in, in the question of vascularization, there would be a larger uh, structure that would be formed. In a tumor, has anyone mapped them three-dimensionally to look at the heterogeneity? Everyone says they're heterogeneous, which I believe. Um, but if you mapped it, what would it look like if you had a spheroid tumor? And if you did so, could you use computer modeling to then backtrack and see how it originated and, and reconstitute and re, re, you know, like show its growth from just you know, one or a few cells up to the whole tumor mass? Has that been tried? That, that is a very, very interesting question that I believe half of the scientists that I know are actually interested. It's not that simple. The reason is because when you have a large tumor, you have the summary of all the possible degeneration that could happen. You have it in that tumor. So tracking uh, back, even if it is a uniform tumor, basically is a mass formed by the same type of cells, which is almost very, very rare to find. So tracking back it will mean to understand what it takes to the tumor to become uh, in that way. And the, the way is not, is not just one way. The, the tumor can become, when, when you observe the tumor, you know for sure that the tumor have used several ways to become what it became. Uh, and then again, we're considering a tumor that is very homogeneous in terms of uh, uh, cell type. The vast majority of tumors, by the way, are very heterogeneous, meaning Even that- Even in cell type? Even in cell type. I mean, if you think about breast cancer, for example, it's one of the, the best characterized cancers. Initially, there were a variety of about 20 different types of breast cancer. They were grouped and subgrouped in different ways. Today, it seems to be quite clear that three major classes are actually present. We have what is called the estrogen receptor positive, the HERB2 positive, and, and then what is called the triple negative. The estrogen receptor positive, they have characterized in this way, a molecular way and also histological way, because they have the expression of uh, estrogen and progesterone receptors. Some of them can be only estrogen, but sometimes uh, more often, actually, they go together. But then still, still in the same uh, uh, categories of tumors in breast cancer, there's also the heart B2. Now, the cells don't have the estrogen receptors, but they express this other membrane protein. This is called heart B2. And then there's a third category which is called triple negative. Well, these three different types of tumors, they can look different. They can uh, uh, have, uh, again, different molecular characterization, as I mentioned, but they definitely behave different. The triple negative is extremely aggressive. It, uh, it's also very metastatic. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It relocalizes in a, in a, um, a variety of other body compartments from, I mean, it starts from the, the breast that can go into the brain and to the bones, into the liver and, and other places as well. So even though these are three, uh, these are still stem from uh, a breast tissue, which is homogeneous, uh, they can actually become uh, uh, and be very, very different. And that, of course, creates a major problem from the therapeutic point of view. With the estrogen receptor positive, for example, there has been a very successful strategy by using uh, tamoxifen that is an estrogen receptor a blocker. And uh, the name itself, it gives you an idea that this type of tumor needs estrogen in order to proliferate. And if you block the estrogen receptor signaling, then the estrogen hormone cannot signal anymore. But then, of course, this kind of strategy, it will not work with the estrogen receptor negative type of cancer because they don't have the target for this drug. And um, in the case of HERB2 positive, for example, there is nowadays the use of trastuzumab, which is an antibody 
that blocks this protein function, the HERB2 function. But again, neither the trastuzumab or tamoxifen will work with the, the typical triple negative. And these are called triple negative because again, they don't have estrogen receptors or progesterone or the HERB2. So in this case, the, the, these patients have less options and the, the level of severity of the cancer actually is exponentially uh, larger. So you said some tumors are pretty homogeneous, but some have how many different cell types have been observed? Yes. The, probably one of the most heterogeneous type of tumor is uh, melanoma, you know, a cancer of the skin. And, um, but if you think about it, that makes almost sense because this going back to the insult that I was mentioning before, our skin is uh, subject to a variety of insults and actually all of them and chemical insults, uh, the, the radiation from the sun or or it's, it's the very, really, the very first barrier that we have against insults in the, from the environment. And so the skin cancer can uh, metastasize almost everywhere. And uh, there are a variety of uh, drugs already available that uh, some of them are actually quite successful, but for the vast majority, this cancer tend to uh, show up again, tend to recur. And when, and this is, when they normally when tumor recur they they are also dangerous because they are resistant to the drug that was initially used to kill the tumor that it's it's an interesting concept going back to heterogeneity because uh, it might be for example that the drug that initially have been found to be successful in reducing the mass have killed the vast majority of the cancer cells but not all cancer cells and that's probably because this remaining cancer cells are now not uh, presenting the target for that particular drug. And so you see that when the, the cancer comes back, it comes back that is resistant because it's nothing more than whatever was left over by the drug application. It grows back and forms almost a different tumor. What's, um, has anyone looked at the difference between a neoplasm and a, a cancer tumor? You know, same tissue type same everything. What, what's different about them? And I feel like there's an important distinction in there. I don't know what it is. Though. Well, there is a, I believe there is a, this is more of a semantic topic. It's more of a nomenclature. A, a tu- First of all, a tumor is, is just a, a, a mass, a cellular mass. This cellular mass doesn't necessarily needs to be uh, dangerous, meaning that it doesn't metastasize and it doesn't uh, disrupt uh, the tissue in which, from which actually stems out. A cancer is something a little bit more complicated than that. A cancer is a growth, so it's a tumor, but this growth is uh, uncontrolled and it, is, um, it doesn't follow any specific rules in terms of interacting, directly interacting with the surrounding tissue. And so the tendency of the cancer is to disrupt and destroy the surrounding tissue. On top of that, cancer can, uh, can become metastatic, as we mentioned before, meaning that some of the cells uh, from the primary tumor, they can shed, they can invade, uh, they can invade the bloodstream, for example, and then eventually they ended up in other body compartments. These are all characteristic of cancers. But again, a tumor is not necessarily uh, uh, this deadly, come up with a deadly uh, outcome like a cancer. These are different things. Okay, I just didn't know if they were very similar, but there was a few missing key elements that can point to how, you know, some of the underlying mechanisms of cancer itself yeah, that's why yeah. I asked. Yeah. yeah, no, no, sure. This, this, this is really important. I mean, nowadays we can we can characterize what are called hallmarks of cancer. 
and uh, they've been they've been summarized in, in different ways. More or less, a cancer cell is a cell that lost control of the proliferation, which practically speaking means those signaling that tell the cells to duplicate are still active all the time. Uh, you have to consider that there's always a balance in normally in, in nature. In cells, it's not different. You have a balance of things occurring. So if the cells needs to proliferate, there will be a bunch of signaling, a bunch of uh, like a software that the cells activate so that from one cell, two can come out. This happens in many, many different type time of our lives. Of course, when the the, there is development from one cell, you, you have to make from one initial cell, you have to make two and then four and then eight and then 16 until you actually start organizing organs and so on. But there is, a, there is an underlying rule that, that must apply all the time, which is once you start proliferating, you also need to be able to stop proliferating. And the, the inhibition of proliferation can come from a variety of, of sources and resources. And uh, for example, if you want to keep the organ shape, you have to start, you know, proliferating at some point, And then when it reaches a certain level or a certain shape, you stop proliferating. And these are all, all again, type of softwares that cells activate and inactivate. But even in our adult life, there are these events that happen. And these events are very similar to uh, what actually is, is, occurs in cancer. For example, think about when you when you scratch your, your skin, right? You, you generate an injury, there is some blood spilling out. And if, if this injury, if that's it, right, you will be dying of, of, uh, by losing blood continuously. But there are programs in the, in, in the cells surrounding the, the wound that are, are reactivated by, by the insult again. And the aim of this reactivation is to close the wound and then eventually stop all the, the potential negatively, neg- negatively uh, events like, you know, bacteria infection and so on. So that happens during our lives. So cancer cells use the exact same mechanism, only they, they don't know how to stop. So a cancer cells that proliferate, it will proliferate almost forever. A cancer cells that move, it will move everywhere it will go. And because they, again, they, most of the time, they just don't know how to stop. But they start doing this because this will, will give them an advantage and the advantage, of course, is it's uh, uh, through natural selection, through adaptation, or whatever, whatever they are. I mean, think about it. there are some there are some cancers they relocalize in specific body compartments, but not in others. And so, why is that? The mechanism that underlies this event is still under investigation. It's really complicated. But if a cancer cell relocalizes in the brain, if a breast cancer cells, for example, relocalizes in the brain, there must, and not in, uh, I don't know, in the skin, there must be a reason. And probably because the brain uh, has, uh, um, provides an, an, a nice environment for this cancer cells to be there, but it's also the other way around. So the cancer cells have adapted so that can live and survive also in an environment that is very, very different from the environment from which the tumor actually have been originated, which is in this case is the breast. When you look at the structure of tumors, are they like Pablo Picasso's in terms of the normal organs? Do they have structure, but they look weird or are they totally amorphous? That's an interesting, an interesting comparison with Pablo Picasso. To me, for somebody, I guess, yeah, for somebody, it might look like. However, they don't really have an organ shape. They don't, they don't, for example, a tumor that generates from the liver we will grow indefinitely, but not 
it, it won't probably it won't resemble the shape of a liver. And same as with the neuroblastoma or or, or skin cancer. Uh, that because they are what is called undifferentiated. So they they have lost uh, uh, the final program. Basically, they don't know. It's almost like they don't know what to do, so they do everything they can. But I thought there was, well, if you look at primaries versus metastases, is there even less structure? Because the microenvironment of a primary, at least they're near their own cell type, but of a metastases, it's totally different cell type. And I would think it would be a much harsher and more alien microenvironment. And therefore, the structure of metastases would be very different. Yeah, so the the primary tumor can be morphologically different from the from the, the tumor that has been relocalized in another organ, but the primary tumor it won't really look like uh, morphologically like the tissue from which the tumor has has been generated, and so the metastatic tumor, so the one that you find in and been relocalized, it won't look like the organ in which has been relocalized. So basically, as an example, a tumor that generates from, uh, again, the breast cancer that, that localizes into the, the, the bones, uh, the one in the bones doesn't look like a breast. It, it's just a, 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 because again, the cells have been in the process of becoming carcinogenic, they lost their uh, differentiation. So the purpose has been lost. And the purpose very often is, is associated with the morphology of a particular organ. So you have to imagine this cancer like a, really a mass of cells uh, growing in any direction they can. So if, if the one that, that relocalizes in the bone has a physical barrier, so they can infiltrate the bones, but most rarely they create masses. And, and because it's a physical barrier, that stops basically the progression of this tumor growth, at least in that direction. But all the other soft tissues around, those are the, the tumor will occupy all the space that it can. And most importantly, they do that also because they need to reach nutrients that comes most of the time through the, the, the vascularization. Um, why do you think that cancer appears to have a tropism for metastases for certain organs? Like, you know, breast cancer, it seems like in looking up a chart, it seems to metastasize to certain organs preferentially. And so do many cancers. Why do you think there appears to be a tropism? Well, it, it, I think it's at some point, uh, the cancer cells in the process of reprogramming and, and restructuring and, and re-expressing some of the proteins that once that when they were differentiated initially, they did not need to express. So a cancer cell started re-expressing of this protein. I think this is a random event and some of them uh, are even there uh, uh, not used by, by cancer when they are in the primary status. But there is a collection now of, uh, for example, adhesive proteins, which are proteins that allow one cell to stick to another. And so at some point, the breast cancer cells start expressing these adhesive proteins that are uh, sticking to bones or sticking to brain or sticking to, to the liver. And so when these cancer cells find itself uh, surrounded by liver, they will stick in there because there are the tools for doing that. So that this might be one of the reasons why we have uh, relocalization of tumors in some organs, but not in all of them. And then, of course, there are some other tumors. They are way more spurious and degenerated, and they express a much larger variety of proteins that allow them to, to grow and, and prosper in almost all organs if they can. So in other words, it, the, the tumor invites itself into the new home. And, and, and the new guest, the new host cannot really uh, avoid it because the tumor has all the tools to nestle in there. 
I mean, the tumor is more or less like uh, it behaves like a terrorist, right? So you don't the the normal the normal body most of the time doesn't know that this is a, a, a dangerous cell and a dangerous group of cells, and so that particular organ basically doesn't even pay attention initially, and then later on the growth of this of this uh, of this group of cells it will eventually destroy that uh, that organ. Okay, in terms of uh, the microbiome and tumors, what do you think the interaction is? I've you know, I've observed that there's there appears to be microbiomes that are different in many places in our body, maybe all the places. But you know, if we have a liver, then we have liver cells, and they have their own, you know, probably localized microbiome. And then you have uh, tumors in the liver. What do you think their microbiome would look like, and what would that do to the interaction between the the tumor cells and the rest of the healthy cells? Yeah, that's another very hot topic right now. There is an interaction that, for, for what I for, the, for what I read, there is an interaction from the, uh, with the microbiome, and this interaction can be permissive for cancer to develop, but can also be oppressive. So basically, a specific microbiome can interfere with the growth of, of a tumor. And then again, it happened more than more than uh, uh, from a physical interaction. It, it is not like a you know a football field when you have the attack and try to break through the defense line. It's more uh, from a chemical point of view. There are some, uh, for example, microbiomes that secrete or produce a certain collection of chemicals that uh, the cancer cell use for growing or for uh, even other systems. But there are definitely some other collection of compounds that are produced by microbiome that are adversing the growth. Uh, this is still, this is in my view, as this is not really my, the focus on my research, but uh, it seems to be a very interesting topic. Uh, and, and again, uh, if you think about bacteria, for example, there are certain types of bacteria that definitely are indicating, even indicating the presence of a tumor. And um, in colon cancer, for example, which is almost obvious, this is one set of tools that you, that, uh, you know, a clinician can, can use. Well, I would think tumor conditions, you know, hypoxic and anoxic areas would also favor very different bacteria than would normally set up shop inside the body. Because I would hope that in the body there's not hypoxic or anoxic areas for sure, you know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, this is another another important topic in cancer biology. You see, there are, there are uh, tumors that are relatively large and uh, uh, the core of this tumor uh, seems to be sometimes necrotic, right? It makes sense because there's no nutrients coming in. But in some other cases, this uh, the inside of the tumor, although it has less access to nutrients, these cells have adopted to live in a, in a condition of hypoxia because nutrients also comes in forms of oxygen if you, if you, you need this type of resource. And of course, the type of uh, microbiome they, are, they have around contributes to the adaptation of the of, of the cancer. Uh, th- again, this is, this is not really the topic of my, of my research, but as far as I understand, there is a, w- w- what initially was considered a multifactorial uh, environment that allows uh, the tumor to grow or not to grow. In, at the beginning was mostly related to the tumor itself. So what are those factors that allow the tumor or cell to degenerate and become a tumor and then eventually a cancer metastatic and so on. Now, this in, in the family of these factors are also including the surrounding of the tumors. And, uh, and the surrounding of the tumors very often includes uh, a certain type of bacteria rather than others. 
Yeah, I would think that since there's trading of metabolites between cells and bacteria, for instance, that uh, you know, if you have tumor cells or cancer cells, they're they're going to need different metabolites because maybe they're not doing oxidative phosphorylation; they're doing you know lactation or fermentation. Fermentation, I'm sorry. So that the microbes that would tend to associate with them would be different because the metabolites, again, they're getting from the cell are different. The cells' needs are different. Yeah, I mean, it, it again. Going back to the concept of the multi-factor, in the end, uh, the uh, cancer is, is really the summary of whatever happens in, to, to all the other cells. Only then again, the tumor has found a, a way to dysregulate specific pathway that would allow, him, uh, allow this mass to, to adapt. And then whatever is the entity that interacts with the tumor uh, the tumor will respond, and the, the response can be the aim of this response is to survive and leave. I mean, the, although tumor is something that kills us most most of the time, many times, still in the end, responds to the the only law of nature, which is necessity. So the tumor will grow out of necessity for the same exact rules and reasons why uh, uh, grass grows in the corner of the of a highway that there would be apparently would be no purpose. So the rules are the same. And uh, I strongly believe that if we start considering this simple rule, we might find a better way to defeat cancer from, from the therapeutic point of view. Now we have previous discussion already, me and you, about the, what we're trying to do in the lab here. So that, that's what we, we, I think that one of the most important thing that we discovered uh, by you know, uh, manipulation of, of ion channels is that cancer cells, again, as I said before, they use all the tools that they have available in order to respond to, the, to whatever is the insult. And so it, it happens that in some cancer, the stimulus, like ovarian cancer, for example, the stimulation of the activity of a specific potassium channel is enough to kill uh, the cancer. Uh, again, it's too early to say if the cancer would become resistant to this drug or not, but it seems to be uh, quite the effect of this uh, uh, potassium channel activity is quite dramatic. But in other cancer cells, like for example, breast cancer, although we were expecting the cells to die, uh, what we found is that the stimulation of the KV11.1 channel, for example, stops proliferation. But the reason why it does that uh, is because the cell uh, has learned that there is a, an insult and they activate a variety of signaling that can counteract the damaging actions of this of this signal. And so, for example, they stop proliferating. And, and the reason is because proliferation is, is very expensive from the ATP point of view. And because the stimulation of the channel breaks the mitochondria, so now they are in, in the energy deficit. And so they try to stop all those activities that cost them energy. And, and therefore, proliferation is, is one of the things they do. I mean, the good news is that the tumor doesn't grow. And, and, but from the biological standpoint, you know, as a scientist, I found kind of fascinating that this cell senses the presence of this insult and immediately tries to counteract by activating pathways that are present in every other cell, only that the other cells are either not ready enough to activate this pathway when they are insulted, or they first need to deactivate the breaks so that the pathway can be started again. The cancer cells have less breaks. So whenever they can, whatever they can do to survive, they will do it and they will do it faster and better than other cells. 
And this, in the context of therapeutic strategy, I believe that must be kept uh, in account. And I'm pretty sure mo- most people do. So in other words, uh, what, what for a long time have been a fascinating hypothesis of the magic bullet, of the silver bullet, in which one single agent could do everything, it is obviously not working and it is obviously not enough. And so we should start thinking of not only uh, targeting different proteins, for example, on a specific cancer, which implies that we first need to know these targets, how they do and what they do and when, but also probably we should start thinking and targeting in entire pathways and not just specific proteins. And so in this way, we will, what we're trying to do, for example, now in breast cancer, we insult the cells by using this channel activators And then uh, we try to identify what is the mechanism that the cancer cells use to counteract this insult. And we have found at least a couple. And now that that we have identified this uh, compensatory pathway, then we use a dual approach. The first one would be to use the channel activator to put the cells in a corner so they are forced to use a, a a counteracting pathway. And then we block this counteracting pathway with whatever is available to insult the cells even more. So to remove that barrier that protects the cells. And this approach seems to be more successful because the vast majority of the cells or the tumors are actually uh, now dying again. If you think of uh, some cancers appear to be caused by viruses like HPV, things like that, you know, I guess hepatitis C. Yeah. What do you think would happen if you have an organ that already has uh, tumors in it and then, you know, that person's exposed to a virus that affects that organ. What do you think would happen? How would the virus interact differently with the cancer cells versus the healthy cells in a given organ? Like, like let's say I, um, if someone has liver cancer, or let's say they have lung cancer, right? Yeah. And they get uh, flu. You know, how would the flu affect that person's healthy lung tissue versus their tumor lung tissue? This is a, a it, it really depends from, from other factors again. You pointed out again, the lung cancer, and this is, this is a, a vicious cancer. It, is, it can show up very late. And so that means in stage three, stage four, that means that the, the, the respiratory organs are severely compromised already. So now when you have even a flu or something, you're going to, uh, that is relatively serious condition, when, when that happens on top of something else like cancer that already is compromising the lungs, then the whole system basically has, has spirals into a worse and worse and worse situation. There is an exponential worsening of the situation. And, and, but again, you are adding up a little to something that is extremely already damaged. And we have seen something with COVID, right? It's more or less the same thing. What happens is that what we learned from COVID here is that it is going to make worse uh, going to make things that already are not working properly, uh, the COVID will make it worse. And uh, uh, so if, if there is a lung tumor, it basically compromises this, this organ, and then even a simple event like a virus that, or, or uh, a flu that they comp- might, might compromise the, the lungs, but in the situation of a cancer, I think it's going to be, uh, can be much, much worse than uh, uh, if they're, you know, one condition alone. Uh, there are also circumstances in which a person can have a tumor in an organ, for example, liver, that has nothing to do with the breathing system, let's put it this way, and then there is an infection that affects the, the lungs. At that point, you have a situation that is it's definitely not the same as 
as uh, uh, if this patient would be affected by one of the two. And also because that interferes with the treatment of cancer. Many cancer treatment actually debilitate the immune system, and that makes the infection worse because the, the, that particular patient doesn't have a fully functional immune system that can fight the infection. How do, um, to your understanding, how do viruses cause cancer, you know, in HPV or hepatitis C or other ones? How does it happen? Well, there are several several examples. The um, information uh, in, in, the, in, in the genes of the virus are getting integrated with, the, with our uh, gene. There are some like sarcomas, they work in this way. But in another way, this is not necessarily... So the fact that the virus can infect and, and can uh, change the, the genomic structure of the host, it is really part of evolution. And uh, we have several genes that we have inherited from viruses. And uh, uh, sometimes that we get the, the worst because the, this particular gene, it, it happens to be an oncogene. And so therefore uh, degenerate the stability of uh, whatever are the, the programs that are in that cells. And so it become, it become cancer and then eventually lethal. But again, it, I think it's a mistake to believe that this nature actually moves out of uh, opportunistic conditions. So tumor uh, uh, happens because uh, there was a series of mistakes and it will grow because it's an opportunistic entity. Same as the virus. The virus infects when it can uh, and, and what it can. And the consequences of this don't necessarily require an intelligence. These are really random events that occur. And uh, in, in this case, in case of the HPV, for example, these are disturbing a situation that is, is otherwise almost normal or normal. And therefore, the, the, the outcome is a cancer, which is which is uncontrolled proliferation. What's, uh, just a couple more questions. We're getting to the end of time. Uh, do you believe that cancer starts from a single cell or does it take multiple cells that are, again, in a, in a state of stress or maladaptation to form cancer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in theory, right, that's, that's difficult to know because, uh, because, actually, not in theory. It is difficult to know because it's, it's impossible to measure. How do you know that one cell can do the rest of it, can generate a whole tumor? because you will never know which of the cell, which one is the cell that will eventually generate a tumor. There are a set of experiments that you can do. You know, you can inject, for example, in mice, a small number of cancer cells and see if there are enough to generate a tumor that eventually becomes lethal. But you are in a situation that is, that is uh, extremely unusual. For example, using mice that are immunoincompetent or, or, or so and so on. But my view is, it still goes back to what I said at the beginning, it's the insult that the cell, all the cells receive. It is highly improbable that a specific insults only affect one and only one cell. It will, it, it will affect a compartment, it will affect a body compartment, which can be a patch of the skin. It can be, uh, think about uh, many of the pollutant agents that we are exposed to uh, they enter our, bo uh, our body in a systemic way. So every single cell potentially could be uh, in touch or could be in, uh, in contact with this particular pollutant. So therefore, I believe it's, it's, uh, it's the weakening. This insult will initially weaken a particular body compartment rather than another. And then again, it's a multifactorial uh, event. Uh, if you live in an environment in which you are exposed to four or five or six or ten uh, different type of pollutants uh, they can they can affect that particular part of your body. Then there is a higher probability that you develop a cancer. 
uh, in, com in comparison of a person that lives, for example, in an environment in which you have less pollutants, according that these pollutants have the same strength in offending. Or in other circumstances, you can be, think about asbestos, for example. There was enough to create uh, problems on its own, but that is because the insult is particularly severe. And uh, so by itself was enough to generate damage. Uh, and then uh, third is the, and I really believe that the vast majority of the normal cell that become degenerate, they will die. They will die for a variety of reasons, which also include the activity of the immune system. And there are, uh, there are mechanisms that cells actually uses to sense that everything is all right. Uh, one of this is apoptosis, for example. It's a, it's a, it's a variety of signals uh, they come together uh, and they try to understand how severe is the damage. And if it is severe enough, they move forward and they, the cells always try to fix that damage up to the point in which the cells realize there's nothing we could, that the cells can do and it's more convenient to die rather than keep uh, proliferating or proliferating. And so the cells eventually will, will almost kill itself. Uh, and again, it's called apoptosis and so on. So the overall, the, the happening of cancer is still kind of a rare uh, mechanism, is a rare event in consideration of uh, what, what normally happens, in consideration of the number and type of events that normally happen to all the other cells. Gotcha, okay. Well, very good. Uh, Thurio, what do you think is going to be possible in terms of cancer treatment in the next few years and what uh, probably won't be you know, arriving on the scene for another 20 years, let's say? Well, there are several successes that we have, we have seen in this past uh, 10, 10 years or so. You know, there are studies involving the immune system now, and uh, that seems to be uh, very interesting. Uh, in a way, we started understanding more and more how the immune system can recognize, recognize uh, cancer cells, can train the immune system to do that. It is working in some cancers, it's not working in all cancers, uh, but that seems to be uh, one way uh, that is, um, uh, is destined to become more and more uh, successful. There's also the, the pharmacological approach. Uh, again, I like to insist about what we're doing in my lab, but it seems clear enough to me that uh, pharmacology can be extremely helpful, especially if we start looking at combination of drugs, drugs, mm. that, drugs that eventually target or, or affect not necessarily only proteins, but pathways. And that uh, also offers the option to look uh, more of a personalized uh, approach. I, I, I strongly believe that we should stop considering cancer like uh, the disease of everybody, uh, meaning that a patient, that has, a patient A that has breast cancer uh, and a patient B that has uh, breast cancer, this cancers can be very different from each other, even though they belong to the same subcategory. For example, you are positive, you are negative, and so on. And so if we start now looking at what makes that particular cancer unique, then we can target the uniqueness of the cancer. And what we have, again, once more, what we have found in my lab is that even though uh, cancer belong to the same type, a big family like breast cancer, they can have different ion channels that are expressed, that are aberrantly expressed. And uh, it would be interesting to see whether the targeting of one channel rather than another uh, gives a different, a different outcome. 
And, and again, we're trying to combine our approach with something that is already on the market, already currently used for, for cancer treatment. And again, once more, we do see different outcomes if we target one specific ion channel with, for example, a currently used drug or rather another ion channel with the same type of drug. And that is because that particular, uh, the tumor that we collected from a specific patient has the expression of one channel rather than another. So the tendency is to go with what's called personalized medicine and to treat the tumor of the patient and not of that particular specific unique patient rather than looking at the entire population of a patient with the same type of cancer. Of course, that is more costly, but again, the technology for doing this, for screening, for example, one individual, a particular person rather than another, is becoming more and more affordable. And many hospitals, they do this already. So then you can have the full spectrum of whatever is going on in that particular patient. And maybe now you can start even comparing what's going on within another patient, even though they show the same type of cancer, the spectrum of the gene array, for example, that comes out of the gene pattern can be different. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Severio, what's the best place people could find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, I am again, I'm an assistant professor in the, the Department of Medicine, the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Illinois. And uh, my uh, name, again, is Saverio Gentile. My email is sgentile at uic.edu. We're focusing on uh, targeting ion channels in cancer. It's a relatively uh, new strategy. It seems to be quite successful. Uh, and, and we need more help from many possible sources and resources, uh, including divulging this, uh, this knowledge that we are acquiring every day. Very good. Well, Severio, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.